As promised, today we move forward in our study of marriage in 1 Peter 3. We are really just going through 1 Peter. And again, this is him transitioning from a theological perspective into a relationship perspective. He's already talked about many relationships in our lives. We have grown more and more intimate as we go, correct? So we have striven to be to go from the general relationship we have with the world, uh, those that are in authority in our life. Uh, we've talked about all of those relationships and within the church we're going to be looking at, but we're really into this intimate relationship between a husband and his wife. And there is no more intimate relationship than that uh, outside of the relationship you have with God. Uh, and it is one that uh, God himself uh, identifies in such a manner. And we're going to see some of that today in our uh, other passages that we're going to bring to bear into our study today. We've spent the last three weeks on our wives, and they have six verses set aside here in Peter to instruct them. And I want you to notice the priority for Peter. Um, his concern was for women who are married to unbelievers. Secondary, his concern is for women who are married to nominal believers. That is, men who are claiming Christ, but aren't living any life that looks like Christ. And that is his primary concern. His primary concern is about how can you image Christ to them in your role as their wife. That is his priority here. It doesn't mean that that's not also enveloped in your relationship with a godly uh, man walking with the Lord, for certainly that is also going to be the case as the example of Sarah and Abram. But we looked at, at Sarai and, and Abraham. Uh, I mixed up their names opposite, didn't I? Sarai became Sarah, Abram became Abraham. Switch those. And so we find that Abraham made some mistakes, yet Sarah was responsive to that and being obedient to him, calling him Lord. And so we have looked at that aspect, and now we come to the husband, and we could sometimes almost assume, and that's dangerous, we could, we could predict maybe that he's also anticipating that same uh, aspect, that we're looking at, are there men who are needing to be an example to an unbelieving wife. But he doesn't stipulate that in the passage, and we're not going to pursue that extensively. Uh, and in fact, statistically, we know that that is a rarity. Not that it doesn't happen, it does. Um, but statistically, we know um, from lots of, of history that when a man comes to know Christ in a home, that that. 85 to 95% of the time, his family will follow him into that relationship with Christ. But that when a woman comes into a relationship with Christ in an unbelieving home, um, that that drops dramatically to 30% or so, sometimes a little less, sometimes a little bit more, that will follow her into Christ. And so... Um, whether God's word is aware of that or whether it is the dynamic of how God has designed homes, we have very little information here really in 1 Peter 3 uh, directed to husbands and really only two directives there. 
for Peter himself to you. And I was going to just take two weeks because there was just two directives, but uh, after looking at some other passages, I'm pretty sure I'm going to go ahead and take three weeks for the guys too. There's enough scripture for us to in, encounter and to engage in uh, that are going to uh, fill this verse with more meaning, I hope, in your life. Uh, let's go ahead and read verse 7. It says, Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Even as we saw a promise of God to women who will submit to their husbands in a godly, biblical way, they are given a, a promised blessing. Uh, not only here, but in other passages in Timothy, we saw it, that it would go well in childbearing and things like that. Uh, but here and in other places, we have a warning to men. Very different at the end. And we're going to be tattling that in a few weeks but just let me start there at the end to remind you that uh, uh, often God's word, when it approaches leadership, says, this is what I expect out of you, and if it's not, here's the damages that you're going to bring into your own life and your own family and your own heart, and so in your relationship with God. But let us look again at the calling. And again, we're going to begin at this one word, and that is likewise, to remind ourselves what we are are using as our foundation of comparison. Likewise means just as that, so you. Just as this, so you should be doing. And remember, with the wives, the likewise was pointing not to as slaves submit to their masters, but as Christ. Christ was the example of one who humbled himself and became obedient even to the cross. He was willing to suffer even to that, not for his own sake, but for the sake of others by the directive of his heavenly Father. That that kind of obedience is what we are looking for, what God is anticipating from, of a wife to her husband. As Christ submitted himself to the working and plan of God, uh, so the wife should be submitting herself to the working and plans of her husband. Likewise. Well, now we come to the husbands, we have another likewise. And, uh, and again, we could look say, well, um, who is the ancillary of this? Who, who, who came before this? Well, again, it is Christ himself. The likewise, again, is Christ is the example for how to be a godly husband. Not in, but in a different manner, a different reflection of this. Uh, it is the same coin, but a different side of that same coin. Christ's obedience was the premise of the wife's response to the husband, and it is his motivation that is the premise of his example to husbands. What is it that motivated Christ toward that obedience? What was it that, that brought about this plan of God and the son's willingness to, to engage in that plan for the deliverance of man that would cost him so much. And we are communicating that information in Ephesians chapter 5, and I invite you to turn to Ephesians 5. This is the Paul's uh, extended uh, description of what this likewise really addresses. 
And in fact, he's going to use some verbiage that is almost identical to that. Um, he's going to use, the, it's translated in your Bible, just as, here, instead of likewise. And so it's the, we're going to see just as. And again, the, the object of the study is husbands, verse 25 of he, Ephesians 5. It says, husbands, love your wives just as... Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or rank or any such thing, but that she should be holy without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones." For this reason, a man should leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you, in particular, so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so uh, we find that here Paul has reversed the tables, and now we have an extended passage for the husbands and a very brief passage prior to it and following it for the wives. And hence we come to this passage to help develop a single word, really, out of the uh, Peter passage that of what is it to be to, to have a relationship with your wife like Christ has. As Christ is our example in his relationship toward the church, so we follow that example in our homes. And we can look at certain words and say, and, and, and take some measure of authority there as, as Christ is the head of the church. So uh, the husband is the head of the home. And we can take those titles and those concepts upon ourselves, uh, but we can warp them if we do not understand the nature of how Christ takes headship in lives. How did Christ become the head of of your life, if you are a member of the church, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have surrendered yourself to him and call him your Lord and Savior, how did that happen? What was the process in which he became your spiritual head? As Christ is the head of the church, so the husband should be head of the home, specifically the wife. And so, likewise, like Christ is the head, like Christ loved the church, like Christ treats the church, so husbands should lead, be the head of, love, rule, if you will, his wife. And so we need to look at this process of how does Christ become your head? And it is not by force, is not by coercion. It is not by the overriding of your will. Nor is it by enticement. Uh, it is not by uh, uh, bribery. Although some preachers, it kind of sounds like it a little bit sometimes. You know, here's the carrot. You want to go to heaven, trust in Jesus. Um, no. It is simply by acknowledging that I am here to meet a need in your life, and to meet that need is to follow after God, 
pursue God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but you cannot do that outside of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And that has always been the case all the way back to the Garden of Eden, will always be the case all into the future. That is, through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, that men are capable of pursuing God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. We have this desperate need in our lives, and God recognizes that. And it is his love that says, I will meet that need. And in that setting of me meeting that need out of my love for you, that I have earned by only, not only creating you, but by recreating you, that privileged position of being your head, your Lord. Not just your Savior, but your Lord. And remember, that's the word that, that Sarah used about Abraham, calling him Lord. Well, how do we become the Lord of our wives' life? As Christ became Lord over us. Not by a heavy hand, but by a servant's hand. By a sacrificial hand. By a hand that says, I will meet your needs to the fullest extent of my capacity, even though it costs me my very life. I will meet your needs. Now remember, we already talked about the women. I will be obedient, even if it costs me my very life. I will obey my husband and submit myself to him. Now we're looking the other side of this sacrificial coin and now driven not by submission but by love that says I'm going to meet your needs though it costs me everything I will meet your needs it will be the priority of my life because I stand in a place where God has put me as the head of this home and that headship is not a place of sitting on a throne and eating grapes it is a place of servanthood as Christ is head of the church. Let's look at again at Ephesians chapter 5. Um, look at what he does. Christ loved the church, verse 25, uh, gave himself for her. That's the sacrifice. To what extent, to what purpose, that he might sanctify and cleanse her. Sanctifies to set aside, to make holy, to to. And it brings us from this place of debasement in our sin to this place of elevation into the family of God. It is a place of lowliness to a place of exaltedness. This is the process of sanctification. I go from being a sinner to being a saint. I go from being a resident of hell, and that is my inheritance, to a resident of heaven with my inheritance being a son of God, joint heir with Jesus Christ. This is the work of Christ's sacrifice. It is always that of elevation. And when we look at the instruction, likewise, as Christ, so we ought to be engaged in this process that my headship is not for me to lord over others, but rather to serve others, to elevate them, and that's what we're going to see. That we're going to sanctify them, set them apart to be made holy. That somehow, by being under your leadership, that your wife should feel in a superior position. That this is an improvement on her life. And that is our responsibility. 
is to communicate to her, not by our speech, but by our leadership, how and, and the manner in which her life is improved by simply being under the protection and the shadow, if you will, of a godly husband. That is not why she put herself under there, but that should be her experience and her reality always. That she has been improved. Turn with me to Song of Solomon. Yes, I'm using a cross-reference for a cross-reference. Okay, to help us understand Ephesians 5, I'm taking a Song of Solomon really to help benefit 1 Peter 3. Song of Solomon, if you found it there, I am in uh, the end of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 2. If you're not familiar with the Song of Songs, is how I... You had learned it. Uh, it might be called the Canticles in your Bible as well. All of those phrases are for the same book of the Bible. Um, I don't believe it is the Song of Solomon. That's why I don't use that term. Um, I don't believe Solomon wrote this. This is probably the only book of the Bible written by a woman. And so I call it the Song of Songs. Um, not just me, a lot of people do. Let's pick up in verse 16. It says, Behold, you are handsome, my beloved, yes, pleasant. Also our bed is green, the beams of our house are cedar, and our rafters of fir. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. His left hand is under my head, his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. The condition that she finds herself in when she is in the care of her beloved is that First of all, her house is strong. Do you see that? Do you see the strength of the house? It's cedar, it's fur, it's green, it's alive, it's growing, I'm safe. And look at her position in that provision. In that provision, her position is, I'm the lily of the valley, I'm the rose of Sharon. (laughs) I'm this beautiful little flower in this strong, powerful house. Man is for you to bring her to that place in her life. I am the flower of his palace. And it goes on. That is one illustration of that. And she comes into verse 3 of chapter 2 and says, I I, I sit myself down in the shade of this beautiful tree. And she compares her husband to an apple tree um, it's not, a, it's not a sh- just a shade tree. There is great shade, but there is also a fruitfulness there and that she finds delight in being in that shade and being fed by the fruit of that relationship and that that is her sustenance. And she says, this is like being brought into a banqueting house and be having a banner over me as love. And we have a little chorus with that, right? We, have a, we do have a song about this very verse uses this verse in the song, I should say. And so we find this relationship. This is what we are looking at in terms of 
what we are doing for our wives and what we are called to as Christ is the head and made wonderful provision. Yes, we can use these phrases to refer to what Christ has done for his church. That he has elevated us to this place of wonder and of blessing and of refreshment and of sustenance. That he has he has covered us with his branches, that he has enclosed us in this house of cedar and fir and greenness, that he has, he has brought us all the provision that we need. And she talks about cakes and raisins and, and apple, all of this thing, all these things that are sustaining and, and that are wondrous. This is what we talk about. We use the concept of being the head of the home. This is the, the example as Christ is head of the church, as Christ loved the church, so should our husbands love their wives and desire nothing more and nothing less than their uh, elevation within the home. And this is the term we go back to Ephesians chapter 5 that is involved in the concept that we should bring uh, honor to, and it's going to show up in 1 Peter as well, honor to this place of the wife. Again, we sanctify her, set her aside, verse 26. We cleanse her, that there is the, the removal of the, that past. There's the removal of all those flaws that are there, that she might be a glorious church. As you grow old and wed, Something happens to your bride. She gets flaws because she's getting old. <laughs> but so are you. And as she's had children, it has an effect upon that figure that we have in our mind of what a beautiful woman is. And then she's, which is really cultural, because in some cultures that's what you might have in mind is not what they have in mind. Um, and also over time that changes. And we are called to really like Christ, to set her aside and to recognize that some of those scars she carries are more reasons to love her and not less. When we look at how Christ responds to those who pay a high price to be part of his bride, those who suffer injury, those who suffer abuse, those who suffer even martyrdom itself, God elevates in heaven, and we find in the heavenly realms that they have the closest place, the highest place in heaven, the closest place to the throne of God is reserved for those who will give their very lives for Christ. And we can ask ourselves whether they will have any of the marks of those on their body. We know Christ in his exalted state, in his physical resurrected body, had the marks of his sacrifice on his body. And I would not be surprised to find those very same flaws or scars on the bodies of those who suffered for Christ's sake because they are not scars of ugliness but of beauty. 
even as I anticipate seeing the nail prints in his hands of my Savior, and I will worship over those, they will be glorifying to his name, for they were there for me. So when I look and gaze upon my wife, I do not see these as flaws at all anymore. I see them as a testimony to her faithfulness and all that she has done and been and means for me. And thus she is never flawed. It says that he presents himself a glorious church, verse 27, having, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but says she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives. If you look at your wife and all you're seeing is their blemishes, um, you have forgotten who she is. You've forgotten who you are supposed to be for her. And so when we talk about this place of protection and of elevation, uh, it is not just I'm going to provide safety and I got, you know, a security system on the house and I've got weapons and I, she feels safe. Oh, no, the place she needs to feel the most safe is in your attention, in your heart, in your mind. Is she safe there? We talk about her provision. Well, I, she's got this and she's got every electronic gizmo that's out there and the fridge is full and the, and the pantry's full and, and I, I'm making a good wages. I'm making a good, good living for her. Um, and, and there's an element certainly involved there that we see in the provision and God does that. Christ makes all of our needs are accomplished in Christ Jesus. He meets all of our needs by him, uh, Philippians tells us. Um, but there's something more substantial than that that she once fed. She wants to know her, your love for her. She wants to see that. She wants to know if that is persisting. And so the whole concept that we are loving them and we are being to them as Christ has been to the church. And I cannot understate the necessity of bringing them that they feel like they are the flower of their home and of your heart. That they should be elevated to that point because Christ has elevated us. He's taken us from what we were, disgusting sinners, and has brought us into holy people of God that he calls his very own. And he sets his banner over us, his love defines us. Gentlemen, your love for your wife defines them. I know you I say, well, that's not reasonable. Why should her definition of who she is be defined by how much I love her or don't love her? It, 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 it does. There was a great little comic, and I think my wife put it on my, I can't remember now if it was on the mirror in our, on her dresser, I think that's where it was, or if it was on the refrigerator. It was just a comic. A woman's going around doing the drudgery work, housework all day, and, and looks in the mirror and sees this, this weary, worn-out woman, and then her husband calls and says some wonderful things to her, and then she looks in the mirror and she sees this glamorous lady. And the only difference between the two was husband called and had these wonderful words of love and encouragement for her. 
We are called to bring our wives to the point of having no spot or blemish, to being set aside and elevated position in our homes. And gentlemen, it is your job. As Christ is the head of the church, so you are the head of your wife. And that head takes responsibility for all below it, and it serves it well. And elevates it all. And this he talks about extensively. We're going to revisit this passage and some corollary passages uh, in the week to come. But let's go back. That's the likewise of 1 Peter 3. Like Christ. So he is our example that he was going to do everything and anything that was necessary to elevate the bride from a dismal place to a place of glory and strength. So, likewise, husbands. And here we go. The directive that the world wants you to say isn't true. And that is, dwell with them with understanding. That's the first directive here. Dwell with your wife with understanding. Now, the world would have you believe that men cannot understand women, right? That's a, I remember being taught that as a very young guy that no man can understand women. And that is a lie from the evil one to dissuade you from the pursuit of knowing your wife. The fact is, is that men are extraordinarily capable of understanding women. Better than women are, honestly. And to help you, remind you of your innate abilities to do this, I want to take you uh, back in time, in your life. I want you to take you back to your single days. To that time when you first saw that gal, you thought, boy, I think I might pursue her a little bit. And whether that was a physical attraction, I, I hope that's, all, that's not all that it was, but maybe at some level that's where it began. Um, for me, it was that girl smiled at me and that was all it took. No, it didn't. Um, hopefully it was something in her spirit and the way she did things, whatever. I want to take you back to that time when you did not know that woman that you were eventually going to marry. I want you to think about what you engaged in to change that. To go from not knowing her to knowing her well. That, that in that pursuit, in that desire to pursue her, to court her, uh, if you use the word dating, I, I don't do that because to me dating is about entertainment and courtship is about something more serious. Uh, and so when you're pursuing her and courting her, uh, think about all that you engaged in to impress her, to get to know her. And, and some men are really, really good at this. I mean, we're talking about teenagers. I was 19. I was 19, setting my eyes on this woman. Oh, I think I'm going to get to know this one. And then engaging in all the activities necessary to get to know her. 
to pursue her. No one taught me how to do that. I didn't have to read three books or five books to figure out, you know, that men are from Mars and women are from Venus. I didn't have to buy that book. I innately understood that if I want to get to know this woman, I'm going to have to set myself on this track of pursuit. And I'm, a, I'm the guy that wants to conquer everything, right? And so I'm going to pursue her. Well, how do you do that? You know how you did it. You know how you did that. And how you got to know her and how you got to figure out you figured it out. What was important to her? What she was looking for? All those things. And, and some of those things might have been really uh, abruptly different than your life. And you say, well, I, don't, I have to somehow make myself attractive to her. Uh, and you changed yourself a little bit for I know you did. Don't say you didn't. Now, sometimes that was a lie. You faked it, but you knew you had to do it didn't you? All the men are smiling, so I know it's true. <laughs> you figured out that this is what she's looking for, and then you tried to make yourself her prince and charming. You did that work. And as a teenager, you figured that out. So are men capable of figuring out women? Oh, yes, they are. Yes, they are. Every time you w watch a man woo a woman, you see innately that they figure out that they can understand that woman. And they will engage in that process of, of making that happen. I want to take you to that time because I, my contention is, is that you have the ability to do it. And the question really here in this passage is not whether you have the ability to do it, do you have the will to do it and persist in doing it the rest of your days with this woman you've committed yourself to as her head. Peter's concern, husbands, you dwell with your wife with understanding. You're going to dwell with her. That's not just taking up residence in the same four walls. It is every level of intimacy that we have opened up our lives to this woman and we're going to take up residency physically, we're going to take up residency spiritually, we're going to take up residency emotionally, we're going to take up residency sexually, of course. I mean, the Bible, there's, no reason, there's a reason the Bible says, and he knew his wife. They use the word know for that. And by the way, the word understanding here that we're going to get to here shortly does not mean having uh, sympathy feelings for her. The foundation word of this word understanding is knowledge, that you know her. That we have this dwelling place that she has brought into my life and there is nothing, there's no hidden closets here, but I have opened my life up to her and she is a part of it. We are in that dwelling place. That I'm going to dwell with my wife, not just reside in the same rooms, but that we're going to share in all things, in our spiritual lives, in our emotional lives, and that's why some men are, are emotionally having affairs all over the place. And it is, 
that is just as detrimental to your family, is just as much uh, unfaithful to your wife as if you had a physical affair with somebody. Because it is her that you are to dwell with. And so we open up our lives and we bring this into a, a oneness. That word dwelling is about permanent residence with this person in every respect. Well, hopefully we know what God's word says about the oneness of a husband and his wife. But in case you don't, let's go to Genesis. Jesus already said, is going to repeat this in Matthew. But let's go to Genesis so you remember that you are supposed to be one with your wife. Genesis chapter 2, uh, the creation of the woman. Verse 21, Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. He slept, took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in his place. Then the rib which God... Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, he brought her to the man, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man, therefore a man shall leave his father and mommy, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In the old King James, we should leave and cleave. That we are joined to that, they are oneness, that concept of dwelling is that wherever I go, you go. That we are one person. I am dwelling with you and I have given you access to every part of me. And thus when my wife nestles down beside me and says, what are you thinking, honey? I don't have the right to hide that from her. And I want, she's asking to be brought into my intellectual world. And I can say, you wouldn't understand. Well, that's just a cop-out. I am called to, she wants to know, she wants to dwell with me, not only physically in the room, she wants to dwell with me intellectually, she wants to dwell with me spiritually, she wants to dwell with me in every manner. And so we are called to take up residence with your wife in these areas, to draw her in and to make her one with you. Now that oneness is a fleshly oneness. We understand that, and so we're not talking about eternal marriages, and that is nowhere in God's word, that while we are on earth, we are one flesh. You say, well, it just says one flesh, I don't have to bring her into these other areas. No. If you truly love your wife, you're going to bring her into every aspect of your life that she might dwell with you that you might dwell with her. And then it says with understanding. So we're going to make her the, the, not the center of our life, but certainly let her penetrate into every aspect of our life because God is the center of our life. Jesus Christ is supposed to be the center of your life, not your wife. She's near and dear, but she's not there. Uh, God should be there. And so we are bringing her in to this level of intimacy, but we're doing it with knowledge. We know her. Do you know your wife, what she needs, what she is about? And most distancing between husband and wife in a relationship over time is because the husband has forgotten that it is his job to pursue and know his wife. Just like you did when you were a teenager. And don't tell me you can't do it. Because you did it then when you knew nothing. You didn't even have a diploma or a degree. I know you thought you knew everything back then, but you didn't, right? Now we know better. And you were capable. 
of pursuing her and finding out what her interests were and, and making yourself what she wanted you to be. Now you've attained that. And now it's not a lack of ability to know your wife. <clears throat> Are you motivated still to know her wife, your wife? Truly really pursue her. A knowledgeableness in your love. We don't ask, you know, the world wants to lift up, oh, blind love, you know, blind love is the best guy. No. <laughs> no. The highest form of love is one that knows the other person, all their flaws, all their wrinkles, and still is committed to their welfare with 100% of their body, soul, and spirit. Knowledgeable love is the deepest form of love. Not blind love. Because all blind love is, is you're just projecting your romantic concepts of that person on them. But if you're going to dwell with your wife with understanding and you really know her, and yet you're going to choose to be her head, to be her, her, serve her and elevate her in your home, that you're going to glorify her, you're going to sanctify her, you're going to make her spotless, make her... Uh, <laughs> That lily of the valley, that rose of Sharon in this house that you've built. That she only feels safe, but she feels elevated. And not just feeling it, but is. In Proverbs 31, at the conclusion of the description of the virtuous woman, uh, one of the, the evidences that you have a virtuous woman is that she, her husband, has a place of honor at the gates and that her she is testified by him that, it, that he is elevated and then in that elevated state, he speaks of his wife and elevates her. Let's go to Proverbs 31. Some of you are like, oh, what? I didn't say that very well, so let's let God's word say it. Proverbs 31. Again, Proverbs, very different than Song of Songs, written to a man and a very manly book uh, about Man, and I know Proverbs 31 is always, the women are reading it, I don't know why. It's because they want to be virtuous women. But it's really written to a man of how to recognize a virtuous woman. The last verse, 31-31, it says, Give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. Why? Why in the gates? Because up in verse 23, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. He has risen to prominence. He has, he has made his way in the world, and much of the reason he has made his way in the world is his wife. Well, it says her own works praise her in the gates, but he is her work. All of her work is pointed towards him to the point in verse 28, her children rise up, call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her. You see, when we have done our job well, our gals are elevated. And when we know them and we have raised them up and, and brought them that they sense that they are the flower of your life. It is spoken well of. It has benefited you, 
and it ought to benefit them. That that private dwelling with understanding, with knowledge, is evidenced in public. There's a public element to that. And I, it grieves me sometimes to see uh, a husband not speak well of his wife. Now, we all know that our wives are not perfect people. We all know that there are struggles in every relationship, that there are times you're not going to see eye to eye, that there are frustrations because you're dealing with two imperfect people uh, that maybe have gotten lazy in both submission and in headship. But God calls you to do better. That that doesn't become public because we recognize that that is something that is flushed out at home and that we resolve that and we take that leadership role and then we, we seek to elevate her and it cannot ever be beneficial to go out in the public gates and to diminish her. If that is my, my job as the head is to elevate her, it can't be done just in private but in public. But neither should it be done in public if it's not done in private because she'll see the hypocrisy of that. No, it needs to be a reality. Husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding, with a knowledge of who they are, of what is their priorities, what is important to them. And you don't need to read the, the five love languages to figure that out. You didn't read that as a teenager, did you, before you started courting? How many of you read the five love languages before you started courting? I'm just asking the men, so none of the women raise your hand, okay? Because you probably did because you care. Um, teenage boys don't care. But we figure it out. Because we have an innate capacity to know our women. If we're paying attention at all, the problem is once we get married, we stop paying attention when we should be expert at it by then and just increasing in our capacity to do that and in our knowledge because now we have life experience, we have this personal relationship and now we can pursue it on a whole other level. When you start to pursue knowing your wife and not just dominating your wife, she will respond. And we're not talking about just her always getting her way because you're still the head. But you're calling her into your life in an honorable way. And thus when the Bible says that we are to honor our wives, uh, that this is what it's referring to is that, and we're, that's the second command in Peter. We're going to really focus on that next week because that's already time for me to be done. That we are bringing them into our life in this capacity, in this elevated place where we have elevated them. Not they have elevated themselves because we just taught them to submit themselves, to humble themselves. And when they humble themselves, your job is to elevate them. Does that sound familiar to you? It should because that's the salvific process. We humble ourselves before God. He lifts us up. Right? 
Isn't that what Christ does for the church? We weep before him, we, we kneel before him, we call him, we, we, we make him our Lord, we, we recognize that we are worthless and nothing without him, and that we don't deserve the kingdom, we don't deserve any of his love. His, and, and, and then he says, come up here. You're now my beloved. You're my bride. You're, you're going to be spotless, blameless. I'm going to take away your sin. I'm going to elevate you. This is your responsibility. And dwelling with them with understanding is the beginning, and it will lead to the next command, to honor them. Not giving them always their own way. That is not what that means. And that's why I keep going back to the Song of Songs. They just want to be the flower in your home, in your life. They want to be the flower of your realm, of your kingdom, if you will. They want to be the lily of the valley. And for you to make that happen, and by the way, you can make that happen, right? Is simply to dwell with them with understanding, with knowledge. You pursue knowing them better and engaging them in not only conversation and the intellectual but the spiritual aspects that we that we have these tough discussions and we and we look into God's word together and and we explore that in spiritual truths and yes um, time with with children can can make that more difficult for sure and it's easy then to fall into a habit of of not taking that time to pursue these things together because you're so busy with children but it must be pursued. It's your job. And it's a higher calling for your life than parenting your children is to know your wife. I'll say it again to help you out. It is a higher calling of God, a higher priority in your family that you know your wife better than to parent your children better. In our parenting class, we talked about the number one relationship in your child's life. The number one relationship is not with their mommy, it's not with their daddy. The number one relationship in your child's life is between their mommy and their daddy. That relationship. And if you work on that one, and you can parent together then, what a difference. Men dwell with your wife with understanding as Christ to them. It involves loving them, certainly. It involves being their head, certainly. Um, all the things, but it involves your sacrifice. Be sure of that. You gave up all the other things. Remember how your friends said, you used to be hang out with us, and now it's just that girl. Because you gave up all your other pursuits to pursue her. Well, now you've got her. You just say, I got that check marked off, and now I go back to my other pursuits? Oh, no. You've made a covenant agreement to keep pursuing her the balance of your life. Or hers, whichever one is shortest. Pursue her with knowledge. Dwell with her. Bring her in. As Christ loved the church. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for our homes and 
we know that they are for our benefit, that you saw that it was not good for man to be alone, and you created a woman. And you've brought us into this very intimate relationship that we find you just not willing to separate. To that even here in the context of one spouse being saved and the other spouse not, you still call us. You still say, I will not interrupt that relationship. I will not break that bond. And Lord, help us to learn that you treasure that bond so highly that we might also treasure it highly in our priorities, in our thoughts, in our use of time. Lord, we pray that our husbands today might remember their Christ-like role in their home. And that where we have failed, our wives, where we have diminished them instead of elevating them, Lord, that we would repent of that and restore to our wives godly husbands. that we might remind ourselves that it is for us to know them. And to be the provider for them. Not only of this physical world, but provide for them in every aspect. Even as you, Lord, have met all of our needs, help us to look to the, all the needs of our wives. We need your help in this. We thank you for it. For the time today in your word to remind us of this and your spirit to convict us of it, to remind us of it, to, to encourage us in it. And Lord, for his power to implement this better and better in our homes. We praise things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.